This program was produced at KUSP Central Coast Public Radio and KUSP.org. And welcome once again to the 7th Avenue Project. Robert Polly here on this day before Labor Day. And um, in these waning days of summer, the official vacation season just about over, I thought I'd offer something of uh, an elegy to the American road. In the first part of the show, a piece on Jack Kerouac about a time in his life when he was mighty road-weary. And then in part two, reflections on that archaic, and some would say dying, mode of transport, cross-country car travel with the writer Robert Sullivan. That's coming up straight away on the 7th Avenue Project. Okay, part one of today's show. You know the story of Jack Kerouac, right? The guy who wrote On the Road and who pretty much lived the American dream of the road, of freedom, mobility, and constant self-reinvention? Well, that's the myth anyway. But if you think it's the man, then you don't know Jack, to lift a line from a new documentary about Kerouac. It's called One Fast Mover, I'm Gone, Kerouac's Big Sur. And it's a tribute to one of Kerouac's last and darkest novels, Big Sur, a thinly disguised memoir, really, about the weeks he spent holed up on the Big Sur coast, fleeing unwanted celebrity, alcoholism, and mounting despair. The film was shot largely on location in Big Sur in San Francisco, and it brings together those who knew Kerouac with people who know and love his work. The film debuted last year at the Santa Cruz Film Festival, and it's about to get its much-anticipated theatrical release. I spoke to the director, Kurt Worden, an Emmy Award-winning cinematographer and filmmaker. Well, Kurt, hi. How you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. Um, this film of yours, um, it's so carefully crafted. I, I mean, I, I'd almost say lovingly crafted that I have to imagine that this book must mean something special to you. Yeah, I love the book. I think it's um, it really spoke to me. It was very powerful and engaging. And I've, you know, obviously read it many, many times and dissected it and analyzed it and um so yeah it 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 turned me on from the first time I actually read it and um then when I started reading other Kerouac works uh, the l- picture of his life came together and I could see very clearly how Big Sur fit into the to his life Describe Jack Kerouac at the time he went to Big Sur in the summer of 1960 I mean uh, on the road it had been published about 3 years before 1957 6 years after it had been written He had been um, thrust into the limelight. Tell us what his life was like. Well, Jack Kerouac was carrying the uh, moniker uh, King of the Beats. And, uh, you know, the reality is there were young people who were uh, looking at him as the king and uh, of this alternate lifestyle. And he uh, was indeed 39 years old. He wasn't a kid um, living in New York. And he... Uh, was drinking, which he had done for for many, many years and had a problem with alcohol. And he also was being hounded, if you will, by these young people that wanted to meet him and be a, have a piece of him. Um, and also he was at a point where he was 
I think he was thinking in terms of losing his voice and, and what he would write next and if, whether he indeed could write. So he was in a, a bad place and, uh, and he needed to get away from it. And that's where he had that opportunity when Allen Ginsberg introduced him to Lawrence Ferlinghetti and Lawrence Ferlinghetti had the cabin of Big Sur and made the invitation for him to go there. I'd like to play a little excerpt uh, from your film where it describes Kerouac's situation at the outset um, when he was living, by the way, at home with his mother in uh, Long Island. Yes. Uh, and decided to, to make a break for, for Big Sur. We'll hear a reading of Kerouac's work and we'll also hear, we'll hear Joyce Johnson, who I believe was his girlfriend at the time. That's correct. I've been driven mad for three years by endless telegrams, phone calls, requests, mail, visitors, reporters, snoopers. He was sort of attracting big, messy gangs of people. You know, people with all sorts of agendas. Women who wanted to go to bed with him. Men who wanted to say they'd had a drink with him. Men who wanted to fight him. You know, it was, it was, it was a big, uncontrollable, exhausting scene. A woman coming to my door and saying, I'm not going to ask you of your Jack Kerouac because I know he wears a beard. Can you tell me where I can find him? I want a real beatnik at my annual shindig party. There was one girl at a party who came up to me and, and said, um, you're 21, I'm 29, I've got to f*** him now. Me drunk practically all the time to put on a jovial cap to keep up with all this. But finally realizing I was surrounded and outnumbered and had to get away to solitude again or die. And uh, he goes on to say, one fast move or I'm gone, which is uh, the title of your film as well. Yes. Uh, and it means? One fast move or I'm gone is uh, really, there's a lot of interpretations of what he means by that line and nobody will really know. But uh, <clears throat> our sense of it is that um, if he doesn't keep moving, he's gone. Yeah, it's now or never. It's it's now or, now or never. And he needs to... Um, maintain consciousness, keep moving forward, uh, or he's a goner. And I think he's recognizing very clearly that he's on the edge. So Kerouac, um, in desperation, really, takes off for the West Coast and uh, heads down to Lawrence Ferlinghetti's cabin in uh, Bixby Canyon in Big Sur. And uh, at this time, he's, he's pretty much losing it. I mean, he says um, he's losing absolute control of the peace mechanisms of his mind. Well, I think he describes uh, different states that his mind is in at various times, and uh, and it's all over the all over the place. He's he's uh, you know he's dealing with internal demons. He's dealing with external forces. He's dealing with you know physical ability to to uh, survive and to move forward and try to make good decisions for himself. Uh, so he's really in a world of conflict, and uh, I think he has hope that the Cabinet Big Sur will be an experience that he can discover and deal with some of these issues he's carrying. Now, Tom Waits, who's, who's featured in your film, describes this book of Kerouac's Big Sur as being like a, quote, chronicle of a man being eaten by ants, like a snail crawling across a straight razor. <laughs> yeah, I th it, 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 that's a great line, and uh, we couldn't resist keeping that in the film. <laughs> Um, yeah, Tom was a wonderful participant in this in this film, and um, you know we could have made the film twice as long with the wonderful commentary that he gave us uh, about Jack Kerouac. And one of the things that's not in the film that he said that 
Um, Jack Kerouac is a, a very influential, important person in his life, and that um, he was a father figure to him when he needed one. Hmm. And, you know, we didn't go down that path and explore hmm. that anymore, but it shows very clearly to us that Jack Kerouac had a profound influence on on many people's lives. And uh, Tom Waits is certainly one of those. Yeah, and, and you found many others who you put in this film. Um, there are musicians like Patti Smith, the singer Dar Williams. There are writers like Aram Saroyan, Sam Shepard. There's Robert Hunter, the lyricist for The Grateful Dead. There's actors like Donald Logue and Amber Tamblin. There's, of course, uh, Lawrence Ferlinghetti, poet and friend of Jack Kerouac, and many, many others. Uh, they all seem to um, love this this particular book, uh, along with Kerouac's work in general. Yeah, I, I think that this book is pointed out uh, by many as being one of the most uh, impactful stories that he's written, and I think it's 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 I think it's the most accessible. And I think that it's one of these books that when you read it, uh, there's something in there that resonates deep within the individual. Uh, the cast was great. The, the The cool thing is, is that here we had a cast and we kind of in our minds broke it down to three groupings. One are the artists that have a relationship with Jack through his his wonderful prose and his being a great American writer, but also many of the um, resistive kinds of stances that he took in, 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 in the way he lived his life. So we had the artists, and that's a grouping that we focused on to, in, to allow um, some kind of insight to come from them about Jack. The other one we call is the originals, and the originals are those who are actually in the book, and that would be Lawrence and Michael McClure and Joyce Johnson. Uh, these people lived it. They were there. They knew Jack. Uh, they are people who... Um, knew him, knew him well. These people have more clarity into Jack and where he was when he wrote that book and the interpretation of that than most anyone. Um, then there's a, another group, and we call them uh, the academics or the scholars, mm -hmm, and, and mm -hmm. they're the ones who have spent a great deal of their life studying Jack Kerouac, and they brought a perspective that uh, entails all his work and puts this particular piece uh, into the time frame and into his life so it can be more uh, clearly understood. What kind of person loves this book and this Kerouac um, as opposed to the kind of people who've embraced a totally different idea of Kerouac from On the Road and, and other works? Boy, that's a, that's a great, great question. Um, my, my, my sense is that his books have very uh, wide-ranging qualities. And I think that what we're seeing in Big Sur is a very vulnerable uh, time where he's being very honest about himself. Uh, he's he's opening the kimono, as I like to say, and showing what's inside and sharing that with others. And, and to do that is either you're in very significant pain uh, or you uh, feel that it's time. It's time to let people know your vulnerabilities in great detail. Uh, and and take the the reader with you. Mm -hmm. Now we're talking about a lot of the uh, people you used uh, as informants in the film, and people may people listening to this interview may get the impression we're talking about the usual talking heads sitting in their studies. But you did something really unusual um, 
and uh, it immediately makes his film stand out. You took a lot of these people back to Big Sur, back to the cabin in Bigsby Canyon, and had them discuss these circumstances right there on location. Exactly, and and I think that's what separates this documentary from many that typically documentaries, you go to the location where the artist is or where the person you want to interview is. So we were planning to do that as well. But what changed that for us is in our research, in our pre-production phase, we spoke with Lawrence Ferlinghetti. And Lawrence says, well, you know, I still have the cabin at Big Sur. And (laughs) wow, you know, we walked away from that phone call saying, well, why don't we shoot it there? Uh, That which would do many things. One, it would be a great backdrop and a wonderful uh, experience for us. But I think by bringing people there, it also puts them in a place that they can remember, they can feel the vibe, the spirit, they can they can kind of get into it more. And the other thing is that people come in from, you know, we brought Carolyn Cassidy in from London to come to the cabin that she hadn't been in in 40 years. And I think that that was a very special thing. But it was also special for the other people who came down there uh, to sit before the camera. And we had a captive audience. They were there for a day or two. They got into the, the feeling of the place, and they really took their time and thought about it. Many of them reread the book just before the interviews. And, and many of them, as you see in the film, have the books in their hands, and they're reading out of the book, and they're commenting on it. So they really connected with it for the movie, and I think that's what made those interviews uh, much more um, engaging and much more interesting. I will concur. There's an immediacy about the... Um about the testimonies of these people and about their relationship to the book that is um, very striking. Um, Throughout the uh, film, we hear readings like the one we heard earlier in a voice that I could have sworn was Jack Kerouac's, although I I had no memory of him ever recording readings of Big Sur. Tell us who it was, and uh, we'll hear another reading. I agree, and I know that narrator would be very pleased to hear that he sounds just like (laughs) Kerouac. Actually, he is... John Ventimiglia. And John Ventimiglia uh, played the role of Artie Bucco on The Sopranos, the restaurateur. <clears throat> but also, John Ventimiglia has a passion for Kerouac, like many artists do. And he does public readings uh, from many of the novels. Um, and he is so good at it that originals when they close their eyes and they listen to John Reed, they swear that Jack Kerouac is in the room. So as an interpreter of Jack Kerouac's voice, he's, he's right on the money. And we decided that we would approach him, and we did, and he was very excited about it. So he has actually um, been a great supporter and has done an amazing narrative read of, of this book. And ultimately what it does in the film is it gives us a authentic feel to the first-person narrative storytelling as if it were coming from Jack. Mm-hmm. And that becomes a very, uh, you know, a very convincing way to tell the story. Well, let's hear another example of that narration by the actor John Ventimiglia. Um, we're going to hear a fragment of a poem that Jack Kerouac wrote called C and uh, put at the end of his book, Big Sur, we're going to hear John Ventimiglia along with Michael McClure, the poet, uh, Tom Waits, and Sam Shepard. Shurning, shurning, plop, gadash. This I old learnings high beside me. Rough old hands of plate out pedigree. We've sunk more boats than dreamer will ever, ever see. 
it, it was a kind of miraculous moment in that it was Jack reading a poem that the sea had spoken to him that he wrote down. It was almost like he took the dictation of the sea and he was reading it to the sea while the sea was continuing its dictation at the same time. This is kind of a rant in the form of a prayer. You know, the little Monterey fishing boat glides downward home 15 miles to go, be home to fried fish and beer. Beehive guides the sea, its bird roots, silver laws forever outward from blue sky of human bridges. To the massive mock cloud sea center heat to the gray, some boys call it gunboat blue. Or gray, but I call it the Civil War of Rocks. A segment there from the new film One Fast Move or I'm Gone. It's about Jack Kerouac's book Big Sur. So, Kurt, we heard some passages of Kerouac's poem See there, read by John Ventimiglia, Tom Waits, and uh, Sam Shepard. And we heard Michael McClure say that, uh, in effect, the, the sea had dictated that poem to Jack Kerouac. The, the poem at the end of Big Sur C is, in my mind, it's the, uh, the equivalent of the bonus material on the DVD disc today. <laughs> and he, uh, you know, he left us with this poem. And, and the reality is it was the only thing he wrote while he was undergoing this experience at Big Sur, the six weeks, actually three weeks there and another three in San Francisco, but the six-week period that the book uh, takes place. Um, he would go down every night to the sea and he would listen and he would try to interpret the sounds and write those in, in poetry. And um, it's a very uh, interesting poem. Uh, it's difficult for many people to read from a um, understanding perspective, but once you... Um, get into that material, you realize the genius of it. In your mind, what is the genius of that poem? I I think the genius of that poem, for me, and everybody, of course, interprets that differently, is uh, the the ability to um, transfer um, the oral sounds of nature into verbal uh, expression that allows allows you to be transcended to that place. And to me, that's important. Anybody who's been to Big Sur uh, knows how magical it is. And he's had the opportunity to enjoy that magic. Uh, But we've had the opportunity to enjoy what he wrote about that magic. Mm -hmm. And so it comes alive to me. And uh, I I enjoy it very much. Mm -hmm. That poem was one of um, Kerouac's happier moments while at Big Sur, but there were many, many moments during that um, summer and fall that were, were, were quite harrowing. He would uh, spend time in the cabin trying to dry out and find some peace of mind. He'd get restless and bored and stir-crazy and head up to San Francisco, where he'd go on binges. Uh, and we've got another clip from the film that describes uh, what happens to him when he goes up to San Francisco on one occasion. Goes up, he really wants to party with his um, artist friends, Get some terrible news about the death of a cat back home in, in Long Island, a cat he loved, and, um, and he starts drinking. So we drive back to town, and I go to the mad boarding house to drink some more, and I pass out dead drunk on the floor, as usual in that house, waking up in the morning groaning, 
far from my clean cot on the porch in Big Sur. No blue jays yakking for me to wake up anymore. No gurgling creak. I'm back in the gookie city, and I'm trapped. Any drinker knows how the process works. The first day you get drunk is okay. The morning after means a big head, but you can kill that easy with a few more drinks and a meal. But if you pass up the meal and go on to another night's drink, and wake up and keep the tooth going and continue on to the fourth day, there'll come a day when the drinks won't take effect because you're chemically overloaded and you'll have to sleep it off but can't anymore because it was the alcohol itself that made you sleep these last five nights. Uh, Kurt, we heard a little music during that clip, and I wondered if you could talk about the, the musical uh, dimension of this movie. It's a very important part of the film that you put together. And uh, again, as with so many other things, you, you did something very original, I think. Well, thank you. Uh, music is a very, very important component in this film. And, you know, we think that there may be some uh, criticism of the way we've handled the music. And, and I think that may come from uh, diehard Kerouac fans that immediate, immediately associate um, Kerouac with jazz music. Yeah, yeah. And, and, <laughs> yeah, and the reality is, is that, yeah, he... Uh, there is there's a great association with jazz music, and there's some jazz music in the film. But we also thought Jack Kerouac is a generation after generation after generation uh, writer that people appreciate him, uh, whether you're 18 years old and you're reading him for the first time or you're 85 years old and you've read everything. So there's this passing along this appreciation for his work. So speaking of music... We end up in a situation where we feel that different generations will interpret Jack Kerouac and overlay their music perspective on that. So what we did is we um, engaged a wonderful songwriter. His name is Jay Farrar. He's uh, the lead of a group called Sonvolt. And he wrote 12 songs, lifting text from the book, uh, and turning them into wonderful lyrics that explain various parts of the of the of the uh, story, um, Jay brought on another artist to work with him on this, and that's Ben Gibbard. Ben Gibbard is uh, the lead of Death Cab for Cutie, and um, to be honest with you, I first said, "Well, who's Death Cab for Cutie?" <laughs> and I think well-known you know, rock band, actually. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's had, well, extremely well-known and, and uh, millions of sales of records and very, very popular, which I found out. But, you know, being of an older generation, I'm more of a, um, you know, unaware of that, I guess you would say. So, mm -hmm. but I'm not now. I understand this music. I think it's phenomenal the way it overlaid with this story. And I am a great, um, I have great appreciation for the music now. So, so here we have two young, popular artists who are into Kerouac, and that was part of our criteria, is have somebody who was in his head, in his space, understood his, his storytelling, uh, interpreting that with their contemporary music. And it was a wonderful, wonderful experience. These guys, you know, worked hard. Their art, artistry was beautiful, uh, and, it, and it really pulled the film together from a, from a, a music perspective. Well, let's let's give listeners a taste of what the music sounds like. Um, this is uh, Jay Farrar, who you just mentioned, um, from Sun Vault, um, singing a song that I guess you're calling San Francisco, or he's calling San Francisco. Yes. 
And uh, it's uh, words from the um, from Jack Kerouac's novel Big Sur. It describes Kerouac waking up on his first day in San Francisco after arriving by train uh, and before heading down to Big Sur. Church is blowing A sad wind-blown Kathleen On the bells Of the skid row slums And I wake up Goopy and woebegone At the Mars Hotel On 4th and Howard Great magical city of the Gandavas Of San Francisco A little bit from the soundtrack of the movie One Fast Move or I'm Gone, Kerouac's Big Sur, directed by documentary filmmaker Kurt Worden, who's joining me today to discuss the film. Um... You know, a lot of people, I think, who who have been to Big Sur or who want to go to Big Sur think of nothing but, um, you know, beauty, uh, pleasure, um, joy. Kerouac had a very different and much more complicated relationship with the landscape. Um, uh, many times, due to his, his mood and his really frail condition, he saw it as, as threatening, annihilating, uh, really dark. Um, and I wanted to play yet another clip of um, a reading this by uh, again by John Ventimiglia. This is uh, another portion from the book, it, and it's uh, Kerouac describing one of his experiences of the coastline there. I suddenly notice, as if for the first time, the awful way the leaves of the canyon that have managed to be blown to the surf are all hesitantly advancing in gusts of wind that finally plunging into the surf to be dispersed and belted and melted and taken off to sea. I turn around and notice how the wind is just harrying them off trees and into the sea. Just hurrying them as if it were to death. In my condition, they look human, trembling to that brink, hastening, hastening in that awful huge roar blast of autumn sir wind. Oh, hell, I'm sick of life. If I had any guts, I'd drown myself in that tiresome water. But that wouldn't be getting it over at all. I can just see the big transformations and plans jellying down there to curse us up in some other wretched suffering from eternities of it. Kurt, did, uh, did you, in your filming of that area, and, and your images of nature play a big part in this film as well, did you, in the filming, see that dark, destructive side of uh, the natural environment that Kerouac was so attuned to? Well, if you squint your eyes and you look closely, you can see it. But uh, the reality <laughs> is we're there on the ground with 30 people, and we're not isolated, and we're not alone. So, um, you know, you go off into the redwoods or into the ferns or the, the hillside, and you start shooting this material. And, you know, you you can kind of transcend, you know, the the group and try to get into it. But I think the you you really cannot uh, have that experience unless you're there alone and isolated. And I you know I think that you know his experience 
there are many factors that that made that um, experience very ominous for him. And, you know, isolation, being alone is probably mm. the, the leading and driving factor. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's interesting that uh, Kerouac wasn't the first to sense that that uh, part of Big Sur. I mean, uh, Robinson Jeffers, some of his poems, same same sense of nature is, is more than just a pretty picture. Yeah, there's a comment in there from Lawrence Ferlinghetti talking about how dark and the death uh, feeling that's prevalent uh, within that area. And you can see it very clearly. I think, you know, we took some shots that would try to, uh, you know, give the viewer of this film a sense of how dark and desperate it can be. Uh, I think we always look at Big Sur and we see the the coastal beauty and the the, the glory of it, but the reality it, it's your mindset that um, what you sets up what you focus on, and you know if you focus on some of the um, the death aspects of what's going on in those those, those uh, forests and 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 in the canyons, you you might have a different perspective if you're uh, in a negative mind uh, mindset. Mm-hmm. So much of um, Kerouac's account of his time in Big Sur, in the novel Big Sur, and in, in your film about the book, it runs completely counter to the popular conception of Kerouac, um, you know, which is of this carefree, footloose guy, uh, this adventurer, this guy who lived lightly in the moment. You know, How did we ever get that idea about Jack Kerouac, who was, you know, always, uh, I think, a, a troubled guy? Well, I'm not a Kerouac scholar, but, you know, from what I've read and, uh, you know, I think it's interpretation. You know, people read passages, they read parts of books, they read the entire books and they come away with this, um, you know, the reality of how he lived and what he did. And it, and it's this, you know, it's more of a, a youthful ideal in some ways where he, there's a sense of freedom and uh, being unencumbered and, uh, you know, being able to move through life on your own terms. Um but, you know, that's very idealistic. I think the reality is that oftentimes Jack was in pain. Jack was in a, a, a situation where he uh, was unsure of his next move. Um, he uh, often wanted for things beyond uh, what he actually had and maybe didn't know how to get to them. Um, one of the passages in the film, uh, in the book and the film, talks about where um, I think Michael McClure actually speaks specifically to this, where he says, um, you know, he looked at Neil, uh, his friend Neil Cassidy, and he would see him and he saw him at the cabin with his family, his three beautiful children and his wife, Carolyn. And, you know, this is something I think Jack always wanted was to have a family and and, and have the ability to, um, you know, have more around him than his isolation and his uh, transient lifestyle. Um, so I, I think that he did have desires for some normalcy, but that never really happened for him. Mm. Uh, you mentioned Neil Cassidy, his great friend, um, you know, the uh, his great inspiration, the model for uh, Dean Moriarty and On the Road and and for um, other character names and other books. Uh, I mean, a really, really important influential figure in Kerouac's life. And you feature um, Neil Cassidy's ex-wife. Carolyn Cassidy, who's still alive, um, living in England, and who lived for a long time, not far from here in uh, the Los Gatos area, uh, with Neil Cassidy and their kids. Um, she's a very interesting person. I, I have the feeling that a movie could be made about her, too, huh? 
I think so. I, she was a, a wonderful person. Uh, we we enjoyed speaking with her. Of course, her family lives in the uh, in the um, San Jose, Los Gatos, Santa Cruz area, and they are um, they're wonderful. Her children are, are you know in their I don't know fifties now, so they're 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 very much adults, <laughs> and uh, they have. Um, you know, wonderful lives, and they're great people, and they they speak very highly of their mom and dad, and and have all these stories that they tell about their their mom and dad that you don't see in this literature, and and I and I and I think that when you think you have the entire picture, and then you talk to the families and the originals, as we call them, um, you start to realize that um, there's more depth and there's more to this than what gets written into a book. Mm. Uh, the experiences with Carolyn, and uh, sure, a movie could be done about her. She's just a strong woman, extremely creative, despite all odds, raised a wonderful family. Um, a lot of conflict with Neil and her over the years. And, of course, she and Jack were in love with each other as well. They were lovers. They were lovers. And mm-hmm. uh, she had says that in our film, and I think one of her bites is... Uh, she says it's well. It's very good for me, which she meant having two men who loved her was a good thing. <laughs> two movie star handsome men, yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, they're, they're hunky guys. Let's yeah. face it, they're they're good looking guys, and uh, I I think that um, you have to give Carolyn credit though that she was a strong woman that believed in the family values and raised three three children that are wonderful. So it's um, <clears throat> you would think that's contrary to uh, these stories that we read in these books. Well, it, it, the uh, the relationships, uh, if we were really to go into them, are incredibly complicated because uh, you have Carolyn Cassidy, who is the lover of both her husband, Neil, and Jack Kerouac. Um, you had Neil Cassidy, who was, uh, was incredibly promiscuous, I guess. I mean, he was, according to Allen Ginsberg, he was Allen Ginsberg's lover for quite a while as well. Um, he had a girlfriend on the side who he sort of passed off to to Jack Kerouac during this time when Kerouac was staying in Big Sur, and uh, Kerouac got involved with her. Yeah, there's a scene in the book where he, um, in our film, and it comes from the book, a chapter in the book where um, Neil introduces Jack to one of his mistresses, and uh, in the book her name is um, Billy. Right, and Billy. Um, you know, falls in love with Jack and wants to have a life with Jack. And at one point, Jack thinks this is a good thing, but then realizes there's no way I can do this. Uh, I don't want to have this relationship. But one of the interesting things that happens is that Jack, and who knows why, decided to bring Neil's mistress to meet Neil's wife, and uh, which was a very interesting uh, <laughs> uh, situation. And you would expect there'd be a cat fight and there'd be some kind of... Um, circumstance under where the, these two women would go at each other and, you know, be jealous of each other. Uh, and the reality is, and Carolyn says very nicely in the film, she says, well, I invited her in and we talked about motherly things. And, you know, all men want to see a cat fight. And the reality is, I liked her. You know, I didn't I didn't feel uh, any jealousy with her. So there's, you know, there's something to be said about that strength of Carolyn Cassidy and be able to accept circumstances and make the best out of them. Mm. Um, but you have to admit that's a pretty unusual thing to do mm. to bring a mistress to meet a wife. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. These were different times. Though. This is sort of the dawn of the sexual revolution, and these guys are a little bit ahead of their time in that regard. I think so, yes. Yeah. Now, um, 
Kerouac wrote very tenderly of this, this relationship, including the physical aspect, and that brings to mind another clip from your film that I'd like to play. This is Kerouac writing about lovemaking um, with this woman he calls Billy. Let's hear that. I just sit and marvel and wonder where all that beauty is coming from and why. And we end up making love sweetly, too. A little blonde, well-experienced in all the facets of lovemaking, and sweet with compassion, and just too much, so that Badon, we're already going to get married and fly away to Mexico in a week. In fact, I can see it now. A great big far-away marriage with Neil and Carolyn. Because a new love affair always gives hope. The irrational mortal loneliness is always crowned. That thing I saw, that horror of snake emptiness, when I took that deep iodine death breath on the Big Sur beach is now justified and hosannahed and raised up like a sacred urn to heaven in the mere fact of the taking off of clothes and clashing wits and bodies in the inexpressibly nervously sad delight of love. Lying mouth to mouth, kiss to kiss in the pillow dark, loin to loin in unbelievable surrendering sweetness. So distant from all our mental fearful abstractions, it makes you wonder why men have termed God anti-sexual somehow. Where is all the beauty coming from? And why? A little clip there from the film, One Fast Mover, I'm Gone, Kerouac's Big Sur. I'm joined today by the director of that film, Kurt Worden. Um, Kurt, you then uh, accompany that reading with... Um, Let's call it a sex scene, although it's very, very tasteful. Well, I, I think it's tasteful. I, I, I think that, as we did in other um, areas of the book, you try to interpret what Jack is uh, writing about. And um, he's speaking about love, and he's speaking about it very tenderly. And, you know, as a filmmaker, how do you express that um, uh, on film? And was that your first sex scene, though, as a filmmaker? Yeah, I'd say it was. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, it's it was you know it was a big question in my mind whether we should even include this and try to do that. But we felt so strongly about the the um, you know what he wrote, what Jack wrote, and the power of that. And uh, you know, love was something that was very elusive for Jack, and we felt that that was a very important uh, piece to bring forward. And once we made that decision, then it was an illustrative decision to try to uh, capture you know what he was talking about. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. By the way, a, a lot of the people in your film who didn't know Kerouac personally, like some of the artists, musicians, writers who have been influenced by him, they all just call him Jack as though he's an old friend. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. And I think, you know, we've we've called him Jack as well working on this project. And I think there's a, there's a non-formality um, exchange when you uh, read, uh, learn about, or discuss Jack Kerouac. Um, I think he is. Um, I think he would like to be called Jack. Uh, certainly not Mister Kerouac. Uh, <laughs> and I think, on subject, uh, there's no need to mention the last name. Everyone knows who you're talking about. Yeah, um, we talked about the the clash between the the myth of Jack Kerouac and the real Jack Kerouac a moment ago. Another surprise for some people might be that uh, if they think of Kerouac really as kind of a um, Buddhist a Zen guy, that he really was at heart in many ways, and it's brought up in your film repeatedly, a Catholic. Yeah, well, he's a French-Canadian kid uh, born in Lowell, Massachusetts, and uh, he was a Catholic. And he, you know, Catholicism is something that uh, 
once you have been raised at those informative years as a Catholic, it stays with you the rest of your life. And uh, I felt that he was always looking for new spiritual uh, opportunity or ideals. And he experimented and he, you know, really was uh, enticed and enthralled with the Buddhism philosophy. But under all of that, uh, fundamentally, uh, he was a Catholic Mm -hmm. and his values uh, were aligned with that religion. And he had some of that that dark, heavy, um, um, you know, guilt-ridden quality that some people might associate with at least one side of the Catholic Church. I mean, reading Big Sur is a little bit like, you know, reading about the torments of Job or or the uh, trials of St. Anthony in the desert or something, Um, you know, this dark night of the soul. Well, I think part of the the torment that Jack Kerouac dealt with most of his life, um, uh, I think Catholicism... um, had a lot to do with that. And, and, you know, there are so many other complex components that play into, you know, that, that ultimate being that he was. But I think fundamentally there were, there was guilt that he carried. Uh, there was a right and wrong voice in his head that uh, directed him. And so, yeah, I think religion, like all of us is, uh, you know, something that, uh, shapes our lives and, and he's no different. So Jack Kerouac was in Big Sur uh, basically late summer, early fall of 1960. It was only six weeks in all that he describes in this book. And then he he left. He went back to his home uh, to live with his mother again. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. He was he was there 1960 between July and August, uh, July and September. And um, he did not write Big Sur then. He went back to uh, the East Coast and lived with his mom and and then they moved to Orlando, Florida. And it was in Orlando in 1961 where he sat at the uh, typewriter, uh, his Underwood, and he actually wrote Big Sur on a scroll, and he wrote it in 10 days. A big, um, roll, a big roll of teletype paper, just as he had written On the Road. Exactly. A lot of people are familiar with On the Road and how that was written on a scroll, and it's been on display, and it's been traveling around the world. Uh, but there were two other books that he wrote on the scroll as well. And one was uh, Dharma Bums and Big Sur. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the opening of the film, you actually get to see the scroll, which has never been seen, uh, which was an interesting uh, aspect of being able to uh, have the family allow us to shoot that. Yeah, you you actually put it in the hands of Patti Smith. Yes, Patti Smith uh, read from the scroll. Um, Most characters in the film were reading from you know, the penguin copy of the book. And when we interviewed Patty Smith in New York City, we actually brought the scroll with us. And it was uh, a very emotional um, shoot. We we uh, interviewed her and she had some wonderful things to say, which you would see in the film. And she also uh, had the opportunity to uh, look at the scroll and read from it. And it was very emotional for her. And actually, at one point, she broke down and cried. Uh, that's not in the film, actually. Uh, because it was more related to her husband who had died uh, years ago, and it, there was a common uh, piece there that touched her. So it really wasn't uh, appropriate to use that emotional outburst uh, in in the movie. But there's some wonderful aspects of uh, her reading it, actually looking at it. And for those people who sit through the entire credits of the film, a little secret here for your listeners, <laughs> um, at the end of the credits... There's another soundbite from Patti Smith, and it's very, very fascinating. So anybody who gets to see this film, make sure you sit through the credits Mm -hmm. and look at the little piece of bonus material at the end. 
Kurt, what's next for you? I mean, um, this is uh, this is a very powerful film about a book. Do you intend to make any more films about works of art like this? Um, we we do. Um, we have uh, I formed a company called Kerouac Films. Kerouac Films is going to be primarily focused on taking Jack Kerouac work and bringing it to the uh, the screen. Um, we have option agreements right now on feature films. Uh, for several other titles, and uh, we're in the development phase right now. I, I'm not sure whether they're going to be um, appropriate for documentaries. They could end up being a documentary, but at this point, we're looking at them as uh, feature film opportunities. Oh, really? Yep. Huh. And um, isn't there another film in the works, another film version of On the Road? Well, Francis Ford Coppola has had the uh, rights to On the Road, Uh and he's had those since 1976, and the film is yet to be made. And I think along along the way, there are many uh, business and creative decisions that have delayed that. And I'm not really sure of the details of that, but uh, at some point it will be made. Um, and we're all really looking forward to it. It's Jack's most popular book, and you know we know Francis Ford Coppola is a very uh, talented director, and I, I feel that it would be a, a, a great film. Um, we're working on other titles that are wonderful stories and other parts of Jack's life and, and pieces of his work that uh, are equally, I feel, uh, great stories. And, uh, you know, once we move further along, perhaps you and I can have another conversation that advances that a little bit. <laughs> I look forward to it. <laughs> Kurt Worden, thanks a lot. Kurt Worden is director of One Fast Mover, I'm Gone, Kerouac's Big Sur. And um, it's been over a year since some of us lucky ones got a first look at that film at the Santa Cruz Film Festival. Now, at long last, Kurt Worden tells me that it's going to be released to the public at large. It's going to be shown in theaters, there's going to be a DVD, a CD of the soundtrack, even some concerts of music performed in the film. And that is all happening in the next couple of months, so uh, keep your eyes open for that. Next on the show, Cross Country. That's the name, or actually part of the name, of a recent book by the writer Robert Sullivan about that ancient and um, perhaps moribund form of travel, the car trip. I hitched a ride with Robert Sullivan while he was in San Francisco, halfway through a transcontinental trip with his family. While his wife and kids took a break from the car, he and I took to some Bay Area freeways in his rented Dodge Caravan. We talked about the ups and downs of motoring, the history of American car travel, and his survival tips for long-distance driving. Tip number one, sing. Don't fence me in. Let me ride in the wide open country that I love. Don't fence me in. Let me see, be by myself in the evening breeze. Listen to the Rivers and the cottonwood trees Send me off forever But I ask you please Don't fence me in And harmonica's great because you can play it with one hand and drive with the other. So Bob, you've made almost 30 round trips cross-country by car. Yes, that's, that's, it's a, that's roughly correct. After about 20 trips, I can't remember how many trips I took anymore, but something close to 30. Well, well, why bother? I mean, um, gas is sky high. Um, the country's becoming more and more homogenous. I mean, a Starbucks is a Starbucks is a Starbucks. A Target is a Target is a Target. Why bother driving across country at all? 
But of course, every year we think it's going to be the last year, the last trip across the country. And we started out to save money because to pay for four family members to fly across the country at the last minute, it's always exorbitant. And so it's just as easy to jump in a car and this may be it. But it's still barely economical to make it across driving. And also, within the homogenization, it's kind of amazing. Particularness refuses to die. My, my theory is that, I mean, everybody always says, oh, you've got to get off the highway to see the real America. And I feel like the real America is the highway. All that homogenization, all the interstates, all the development that just eats up open space. The, the interstates are America. It's kind of whether we like it or not. They, they are America. You know, some people, when they talk about the uh, romance of, of driving in this day and age, they're really talking about nostalgia. What they're really looking for is the old diner that's shaped like a coffee cup, you know, or the roadside attraction where the old guy still shows his uh, poisonous snake collection or something like that. How are you with regard to that kind of uh, backward-looking travel? Well, I, I have no problem with that. That kind of backward-looking travel, I mean, nostalgia and travel, that, that's been with us for a long time. I mean, uh, you know, I'll stop for giant anything, really. I, I don't have a problem stopping for the world's largest road runner, which I think we saw recently in Arizona. But but, um, but I guess that I suppose that's one component of travel. One is nostalgia. You're kind of going back to see something. Another component might be adventure. You know, what are we going to see? But either way, it kind of takes you out of your place, out of your everyday life. And that that's just... You know, travel for travel's sake. That that's, I think, what it's kind of all about. You're you're just shaking things up. We're lucky in that we we do go off and travel, and and you're you're seeing the whole middle of the country, pretty much everything in the country, because you're going basically from one grandmother to another, from a grandmother on the east coast to a grandmother on the west coast, and um, that's kind of the reason we travel. So I feel lucky in that we have a reason to go across the country. I just don't know how much longer we can keep it up. It gets, it can be really hard. I'm in the last day or two of this cross-country trip, and, you know, I mean, I've been eating, here they are, so many um, toasted peanut butter sandwich crackers made with real peanut butter. I've been eating those for three days now, so. Yeah, this reminds me of a quote in your book. It's from one of the early uh, cross-country motorists, none other than Emily Post, who is later known as the Queen of Etiquette, she made a cross-country trip in a car, and uh, she talked about road food, and she said, After many days of it, you feel as though you have been interlined with a sort of paste. Yeah, that's pretty much what the food is that you find, mostly on the road. Bob, do you have any tips for travelers, uh, people driving cross-country? Ways to stay sane. Yeah, okay. Don't eat dinner, eat lunch. Pull in early, start really early. Uh, for families, uh, everybody's got to pick their CDs beforehand. Uh, we do it about 100 CDs, 25 for each person, and you take turns. So part of the deal is, you know, I'm, well, I get the next CD shot. So, Bob, um, early car travel across the country, from what you described, was really only for the most rugged of individuals. I mean, we're talking goggles and gloves and, you know, uh, dirt roads and uh, breakdowns in the desert and all that kind of stuff? Early car travel was for kind of rugged individuals or people who wanted to seem rugged. And 
the, the deal there was you had to have a lot of money to have a car. And chances are, if you had enough money to buy a car at the time, well, at least in all the accounts I've read, you, you weren't a mechanic. You, you tended to be, a, you know, a, a guy who had a lot of money. So, uh, or in, in the case of the first woman across the country, she was sponsored by a car company. The car company wanted to prove that cars were really easy to maintain. So if a woman could drive across the country, well, anybody could. But I think they um, picked the wrong woman to prove that because she was more amazing than most men. I think she could fix the car herself. So most of the guys who went, of course, couldn't fix the car themselves, and they would travel with mechanics. So the person who had the really rugged trip was the mechanic. Not that it wasn't tough to sleep in barns and stuff like that. I'm sure when you cross, the the amazing thing about crossing, to me, when I think about crossing then, was that you the directions were really, really vague. And... You would go to AAA in New York, for instance, the early AAA. You'd meet this guy, and uh, he would give you very crude maps. And the maps were some lines, but mostly written out directions that said, you know, when you get to Iowa, when you get to the border, you drive three miles along the road, along the river, and you come to a red barn, and you take a right at the red barn. But then every third year, they they change the color of the barn, and so the directions were no longer valid. So, so early car travel, um, long distance car travel across country and stuff was was pretty pretty rough and ready. Uh, it wasn't really like family vacation material. When did it become a family uh, activity? In the twenties, American magazines, because that's the dawn of magazines too. Uh, in the twenties, magazines began promoting this idea of, of car camping, and. A big theme in America in the 20s, and it coincides with the fact that a lot of people were working now in factories and not as much on the farm, but um, a a big theme was everybody could be kind of uh, an amateur Thoreau. Everybody wanted to get out, get in touch with nature, and the way to do that was to pack up your car with camping equipment, and people would just drive into farmers' fields and set up a lot of uh, for lack of a better word, crap all over, and leave the crap. I mean, leave their garbage. You know, I mean, there weren't latrines. I mean, it was it was a nightmare, and thus uh, came, you know, and, and from that came the first motels and hotels and camping sites, and it, and it became it became a, a a thing that cut across classes. Everybody wanted to go out, drive their car out, and set up a tent and sit there, and it kind of was a a way that the city met the country in those days. And, and people would write back, come back to New York and say, you don't need to have a gun when you get to Kansas. You don't need to carry a gun at all times. So what I'm wondering is, did the presence of kids on the road come the 1920s and later change the road itself? Uh, did entrepreneurs start designing um, their attractions because they knew that if they could get a kid to go, Mom, Dad, stop here, that they had their business? Well... People always went on vacations with their families. The, the thing that, that changed about families is now we don't go on vacation with our families. The idea, I, I guess I'm sort of shocked that people, when I tell them I've been around the country a billion times, across the country in a car, they're not amazed that we've driven 90,000 miles or whatever the math is. They're amazed that we've been in the car with, with our kids I think that's kind of 
kind of sad that people can't imagine spending a week in the same place with their children. I think that's really, that kind of depresses me. So back to tips for travelers, uh, staving off sleepiness. Oh, oh, it's, oh, it's really hard. This is, I think about this all the time. How do you do it? In the beginning of the trip, I try to treat coffee like a, you know, a potion that, that shouldn't be overused and should be worshipped very carefully uh, and with great attention to measure. So, you know, I'll try not to drink a lot so it'll still have the kick. But, you know, then cut to me on the sixth day and, you know, it's, it's 8 o'clock at night in Pennsylvania. I'm on Route 80. I'm trying to get back east or vice versa on, on Route 84 into Oregon. And, and, you know, I'm on cup number 27 and it tastes it's got no I've, I've overdone it so you know the power is no longer there it's just a brown liquid that I want to have a kick but it has no kick no matter how strong I make it is there a gas station there? is there a coffee station? yeah yeah there's a food mart perfect oh yeah okay perfect perfect here we are at a food mart a highway convenience store that is here in the city. I hate that sound so much. I hate talking of the car with the keys lock. Okay. Uh, coffee. Co oh, perfect. This is it. Get the dollar nineteen uh, gourmet coffee. Suave Java. Hey, that's right. How are you? Oops. Anything else? Uh, no, thank you. Thank, Thank you very much. Have a good day. You too. Yeah. I, I used to be that I just saw this some places on the highway across the country, but these convenience stores have now come into our to our cities, come into our towns, and and for me it's it's kind of the same as bringing the the interstate or the highway into the village where where everything's about making it quicker in the car and okay let's get the gas let's get the food we're good so that it's you know it's kind of the opposite of the slow food movement it's the fast it's all part of the fast food movement but the fast food movement i mean moving faster is is a huge part of it, it has to do with the roads i mean everything about eating and and growing things to eat comes down to trucking and that's really what the interstate highway system is. It's really this amazing economic machine that moves trucks across the country, that moves tons and tons of freight every hour, billions of tons of stuff every year. Seatbelts on, please. You know, um, I think something that people are reluctant to talk about when it comes to describing their travels uh, is disappointments because you're supposed to come back with really good stories, really cool stuff, but disappointment's a big part of travel. Yeah, you know that's the whole thing. Everybody talks about going to see America, and you're supposed to come to this glorious moment where you where you you pull up the car and you get out, and you know music happens, and you see America. There it is. I've seen America. I now I understand. But in fact, a lot of times you break down, uh, you get a flat tire on a back road in Montana when you're trying to find, a, for instance, a nuclear missile silo to show the kids. And, the, you know, I remember that as one of the great trips because we stopped at Don's OK Tire Repair and 
we had to kind of sit outside the garage and we were meeting all these people in this town coming to the garage shop to get their flats fixed and we had a, lo- a late breakfast and learned about the history of gems in the area and it was great. I was interested in reading your book though uh, because you spent a lot of time talking about Lewis and Clark whose footsteps you sort of follow in for a while um, that they were not only the first at least official explorers to go west beyond the Mississippi all the way to the west coast on the on behalf of the American government but they also were very disappointed. They met Indians in this so-called virgin wilderness who swore in English, wore overalls, carried pistols, had uh, had uh, commerce with the East Coast. This, I, you know, they're, they're revered as heroic figures, and, uh, and I think what they did is absolutely heroic. And you, and you think about them when you're driving across country, or I do, because they're the, the first transcontinentalists, I like to call them. They, they led the way. I mean, they... Jefferson, all Jefferson wanted to do was cross the country because to cross the country would be to describe it. And to describe it in those days was to basically own it. It was yours. And he wanted to describe it before the British did. And, and there's that idea that you, you're claiming the country by crossing it that lingers still. We still think somehow that, you know, we'll be better Americans or better citizens. But something happened with citizen and trying to... You know, get a good deal on the road and consumership, and now it's sort of where do you get the best deal on the road? That's the most American thing, maybe. I don't know. But Lewis and Clark were disappointed, and I think, you know, we celebrate them as as heroes, like I say, but we should be celebrating that they made it through this disappointment. And that's why I'm more interested, it's not like I'm not interested in their trip out, but their trip back is this trip through stuff they they couldn't have have imagined a position they they didn't ever think they were going to be in which was traveling not through a savage wilderness civilizationless wilderness but instead traveling through various civilizations when they went through uh mandan villages in the dakotas these were cities that were larger than the cities they bought their supplies in, St. Louis or Pittsburgh or even Washington, D.C. And they had trading routes with nations all around the continent. And by the time they got to the West Coast, they were seeing trade routes that were happening with Asia. So I think that's really, I think that's one of the things that Lewis knew was that we weren't what we were thinking we were and we weren't in a place that we thought we were and I think we have to figure out a way to come to terms with what Lewis was kind of facing, which is that we're not exactly what we think we are. Well, Bob, how many more miles to go before home? Only, uh, only let's see, another 28, or if we're going to go to Wisconsin, maybe 3,000 miles. Oh, you're almost there. Oh, it's a, it's a piece of cake. Okay, Bob, happy trails. You know what Woody Guthrie used to say? He used to say, take it easy, but take it. I'll remember that. All right, so take it easy.
ask you please don't fence me in. Robert Sullivan. His latest book is Cross Country, 15 Years and 90,000 Miles on the Roads and Interstates of America with Lewis and Clark, A Lot of Bad Motels, A Moving Van, Emily Post, Jack Kerouac, My Wife, My Mother-in-Law, Two Kids, and Enough Coffee to Kill an Elephant. I'm Robert Polly. Happy Holidays. And uh, an addendum to those remarks, uh, in the two years since I did that interview, Robert Sullivan has come out with a new book, so Cross Country is not his most recent. The new one is called The Thoreau You Don't Know.